0: These stories are from the book The Shape of Fear and Other Ghostly Tales by Elia Wilkinson Petey 1904 On the Northern Ice The winter nights up at Salt Saint Marie are as white and luminous as the Milky Way. The silence which rests upon the solitude appears to be white also. Even sound has been included in nature's arrestment, for indeed, save the still white frost, all things seem to be obliterated. The stars have a poignant brightness, but they belong to heaven and not to earth. And between their immeasurable height and the still ice rolls the ebon ether in vast liquid billows. In such a place it is difficult to believe that the world is actually peopled. It seems as if it might be the dark of the day after Cain killed Abel, and as if all humanity's remainder was huddled in affright away from the awful spaciousness of creation. The night Ralph Hagedorn started out for Echo Bay even on a pleasant duty, he laughed to himself and said that he did not at all object to being the only man in the world, so long as the world remained as unspeakably beautiful as it was when he buckled on his skates and shot away into the solitude. He was bent on reaching his best friend in time to act as groomsman, and business had delayed him till time was at its briefest. So he journeyed by night and journeyed alone, and when the tang of the frost got at his blood, he felt as a spirited horse feels when it gets free of bit and bridle. The ice was his glass, his skates were keen, his frame fit and his venture to his taste. So he laughed and cut through the air as a sharp stone cleaves the water. He could hear the whistling of the air as he cleft it. As he went on and on in the black stillness, he began to have fancies. He imagined himself enormously tall, a great Viking of the Northland, hastening over icy fjords to his love. And that reminded him that he had a love, though indeed that thought was always present with him, as he had seen her only a few times, and the auspicious occasion had not yet presented itself. She lived at Echo Bay also, and was to be the maid of honor to his friend's bride which was one more reason why he skated almost as swiftly as the wind, and why, now and then, he let out a shout of exultation. The one cloud that crossed Hagedorn's son of expectancy was the knowledge that Marie Beaujau's father had money, and the Marie lived in a house with two stories to it, and wore otter skin about her throat and little satin-lined mink boots on her feet when she went sledding. Moreover, in the locket in in which she treasured a bit of her dead mother's hair, there was a black pearl as big as a pea. These things made it difficult, perhaps impossible, for Ralph Hagedorn to say more than, I love you. But that much he meant to say, though, he was scourged with chagrin for his temerity. This determination grew upon him as he swept along the ice under the starlight. Venus made a glowing path toward the west and seemed eager to measure him. He was sorry he could not skim down that avenue of light which flowed from the love star, but he was forced to turn his back upon it and face the black Northeast. It came to him with a shock that he was not alone. His eyelashes were frosted and his eyeballs blurred with the cold. So at first he thought it might be an illusion But then he had rubbed his eyes hard. He made sure that not very far in front of him was a long white skater in fluttering garments who sped over the ice as fast as ever Werewolf went. He called aloud, but there was no answer. He shaped his hands and trumpeted through them, but the silence was as before, it was complete. So then he gave chase, setting his teeth hard and putting attention on his firm young muscles. But go however he would, the white skater went faster After a time as he glanced at the cold gleam of the North Star, he perceived that he was being led from his direct path. For a moment he hesitated, wondering if he would not do better to keep to the road, but his weird companion seemed to draw him on irresistibly, and finding it sweet to follow, he followed. Of course it came to him more than once in that strange pursuit that the White Stalker was no earthly guide. But in these latitudes men see curious things when the hoarfrost is on the earth. Hagedorn's own father, to hark no further than that for an instance, who lived up there with the Lake Superior Indians and worked in the copper mines, had welcomed a woman at his hut one bitter night, who was gone by the morning. She left no tracks on the snow. Yet it was so and John Fontenelle, the half-breed, could tell you about it any day if he were alive. Well, Hagedorn followed the White Stalker all the night, and when the ice flushed pink at dawn and arrows of lovely light shot up in the cold heavens, she was gone, and Hagedorn was at his destination. The sun climbed arrogantly up to his place above all other things, and as Hagedorn took off his skates and glanced carelessly lakeward, he beheld a great wind rift in the ice and the waves showing blue and hungry between white fields, had he rushed along his intended path, watching the stars to guide him, his glance turned upward. All his body, at magnificent momentum, he must certainly have gone into that cold grave. How wonderful that it had been sweet to follow the white skater, and that he followed. His heart beat hard as he hurried to his friend's house, but he encountered no wedding his friend met him as men meet in House of Mourning. "'Is this your wedding face?' cried Hagedorn. "'Why, man, starved as I am, I look more like a bridegroom than you.' "'There's no wedding today.' "'No wedding? Why, you're not Marie Beaujo died last night?' Marie died last night. She had been skating in the afternoon, and she came home chilled and wandering in her mind as if the frost had gone it somehow. She grew worse and worse. And all the time, she talked of you. Of me? We wondered what it meant. No one knew that you were lovers. I didn't know it myself. More's the pity. At least I didn't know. She said you were on the ice and that you didn't know about the big breaking up. And she cried to us that the wind was offshore and the rift widening. She cried over and over again that you could come in by the old French creek, if you only knew. I came in that way. But how did you do that? It's out of the path. We thought perhaps." But Hagedorn broke in with his story and told him all as it had come to pass. That day they reached beside the maiden, who lay with tapers at her head and at her feet, and in the little church the bride who might have been at her wedding said prayers for her friend. They buried Marie Beaujau in her bridesmaid white, and Hagedorn was before the altar with her as he had intended from the first. Then at midnight the lovers who were to wed whispered their vows in the gloom of the cold church and walked together through the snow to lay their bridal wreaths upon a grave. Three nights later Hagedorn skated back again to his home. They wanted him to go by sunlight, but he had his way and went when Venus made her bright path on the ice. The truth was he had hoped for the companionship of the white skater, but he did not have it. His only companion was the wind, The only voice he heard was the baying of a wolf on the north shore. The world was as empty and as white as if God had just created it, and the sun had not yet colored nor man defiled it. The Piano Next Door Babette had gone away for the summer. The furniture was in its summer linens. The curtains were down and Babette's husband, John Boyce, was alone in the house. It was the first year of his marriage and he missed Babette. But then, as he often said to himself, he ought never to have married her. He did it from pure selfishness and because he was determined to possess the most elusive, tantalizing, elegant, and utterly unmoral little creature that the sun shone upon. He wanted her because she reminded him of birds and flowers and summer winds and other exquisite things created for the delectation of mankind. He neither expected nor desired her to think. He had half frightened her into marrying him, had taken her to a poor man's home, provided her with no society such as she had been accustomed to, and he had no reasonable cause of complaint when she answered the call of summer and flitted away, like a butterfly in the morning sunshine, to the place where the flowers grow. He wrote to her every evening, sitting in the stifling ugly house, and poured out his soul as if it were a libation to a goddess. She sometimes answered by telegraph, sometimes by a perfumed note. He schooled himself not to feel hurt. Why should Babette write? Does a goldfinch indict epistles? Or a hummingbird study composition? Or a glancing red-scaled fish in summer shallows consider the meaning of words? He knew at the beginning what Babette was, guessed her limitations, trembled when he buttoned her tiny glove, kissed her dainty slipper when he found it in the closet after she was gone thrilled at the sound of her laugh. That was all. A mere case of love. He was in bonds. Babette was not. Therefore, he was in the city, working over hours to pay for Babette's pretty follies down at the seaside. It was quite right and proper. He was a grub in the foro, she a lark in the blue. Those had always been and always must be their relative positions. Having attained a mood of philosophic calm in which he was prepared to spend his evenings alone, as became a grub, and to await with dignified patience the return of his wife, it was in the nature of an inconsistency that he should have walked the floor of the dull little drawing-room like a lion in a cage. It did not seem in keeping with the position of superior serenity which he had assumed, that reading Babette's notes he should have raged with jealousy, or that in the loneliness of his unkempt chamber he should have stretched out arms of longing. Even if Babette had been present, she would only have smiled her gay little smile. She could not understand. He had known, of course, from the first moment that she could not understand. And so why the ache, ache, ache of his heart? Or was it the heart? Or the brain? Or the soul? Sometimes when the evenings were so hot that he could not endure the close air of the house, he sat on the narrow, dusty front porch and looked about him at his neighbors. The street had once been smart and aspiring, but had fallen into decay and dejection. Pale young men with flurried looking wives seemed to boys to occupy most of the houses. Sometimes three or four couples would live in one house. Most of them appeared to be childless. The woman made a pretense at fashionable dressing and wore the hair elaborately in fashions which somehow suggested boarding houses to boys, though he could not have told why. Every house in the block needed fresh paint. Lacking this renovation, the householders tried to make up for it by a display of lace curtains, which at every window swayed in the smoke-weighted breeze. Strips of carpeting were laid down the front steps of the house where the communities of young couples lived And here, evenings, the inmates of the houses gathered, committing mild extravagancies such as the treating of each other to ginger ale or beer or ice cream. Boyce watched these tawdry makeshifts at sociability with bitterness and loathing. He wondered how he could have been such a fool as to bring his exquisite babette to this neighborhood. How could he expect that she would return to him? It wasn't reasonable. He ought to go down on his knees with gratitude that she even condescended to write him. Sitting one night till late, so late that the fashionable young wives with their husbands had retired from the strips of stair carpeting, and raging at the loneliness which ate at his heart like a cancer, he heard, softly creeping through the windows of the house adjoining his own, the sound of a comfortable melody. It breathed upon his ear like a spirit of consolation speaking of peace. Of love, which needs no reward, save its own sweetness. Of aspiration, which looks forever beyond the thing of the hour to find attainments in that which is eternal. So insidiously did it whisper these things, so delicately did simple and perfect melodies creep upon the spirit, that boys felt no resentment from the first listened as one who listened to learn, or as one who, fainting on the hot road, fears far in the ferny deeps below the gurgle of a spring. Then came harmonies more intricate, fair fabrics of woven sound in the midst of which gleamed golden threads of joy, a tapestry of sound, multi-tinted, gallant with story and achievement and beautiful things. Boyce sitting on his absurd piazza with his knees jammed against the balustrade and his chair backed against the dull-colored wall of his house seemed to be walking in the cathedral of the redwood forest, with blue above him, a vast hymn in his ears, pungent perfume in his nostrils and mighty shafts of trees lifting themselves to heaven proud and erect as pure men before their judge he stood on a mountain at sunrise and saw the marvels of the amethystine clouds below his feet heard an eternal and white silence such as broods among the everlasting snows and saw an eagle winging for the sun he was in a city and away from him diverging from the spokes of a wheel ran thronging streets, and to his sense came the beat, beat, beat of the city's heart. He saw the golden alchemy of a chosen race, saw greed transmitted to progress, saw that which had enslaved man, worked at last to their liberation, heard the roar of mighty mills, and on the streets of all the peoples of earth walking with common purpose, in fealty and understanding. And then from the swelling of this concourse of great sounds came a diminuendo, calm as philosophy, and from that, nothing. Boy sat still for a minute, listening to the echoes with which the music had awakened in his soul. He retired at length, content, but determined that upon the morrow he would watch, the day being Sunday, for the musician who had so moved and taught him. He arose early, therefore, and having prepared his own simple breakfast of fruit and coffee, took his station by the window to watch for the man, for he felt convinced that the exposition he had heard was that of a masculine mind. The long, hot hours of the morning went by, but the front door of the house next to his did not open. These artists sleep late, he complained. Still he watched. He was too much afraid of losing him to go out for dinner. By three in the afternoon he had grown impatient. He went to the house next door and rang the bell. There was no response. He thundered another appeal. An old woman with a cloth about her head answered the door. She was very deaf, and Boyce had difficulty in making himself understood. The family is in the country, was all she would say. The family will not be home till September. But there is someone living here, shouted Boyce. I live here, she said with dignity, putting back a wisp of dirty gray hair behind her ear. It is my house. I sublet to the family. What family? but the old creature was not communicative. The family that lives here, she said. Then who plays the piano in the house, roared Boyce. Do you? He thought a shade of pallor showed itself on her ash-colored cheeks. Yet she smiled a little at the idea of her playing. There is no piano, she said, and she put an emphasis to the words. Nonsense, cried Boyce indignantly. I heard a piano being played in this very house for hours last night. You may enter said the old woman with an accent more vicious than hospitable. Boyce almost burst into the drawing room. It was a dusty and forbidding place with ugly furniture and gaudy walls. No piano, nor any other musical instrument stood in it. The intruder turned an angry and baffled face to the old woman who was smiling with ill-concealed exultation. I shall see the other rooms, he announced. The old woman did not appear to be surprised at his impertinence. As you please, she said. So with the hobbling creature with her bandaged head for a guide, he explored every room of the house, which, being identical with his own, he could do without fear of leaving an apartment unentered. But no piano did he find. Explain, roared Boyce at length, turning upon the leering old hag beside him. Explain, for surely I heard music more beautiful than I can tell. I know nothing, she said. But it is true, I once had a lodger who rented the front room and that he played upon the piano. I'm poor at hearing, but he must have played well, for all the neighbors used to come in from the house to listen, and sometimes they applauded him, and sometimes they were still. I could tell by watching their hands. Sometimes little children came and danced, other times young men and women came and listened. But the young man died. The neighbors were angry. They came to look at him and said he had starved to death. It was no fault of mine. I sold his piano to pay his funeral expenses. And it took every cent to pay for them too, I'd have you know. But since then, sometimes, still it must be nonsense, for I never heard it. Folks say that he plays the piano in my room. It's kept me out of the letting of it more than once. But the family doesn't seem to mind. The family that lives here, you know, they'll be back in September, yes. Boyce left her nodding her thanks at what he had placed in her hand and went home to write it all to Babette, Babette who would laugh so merrily when she read it. Thank you for listening to Nightmare on 5th Street, a horror movie podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can do so at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are currently enjoying your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please remember to rate and review. Thank you for listening.